Hey, this is Erica, and welcome back to Antique Tea, where history sometimes runs longer than you think it will. This is the second part to the final episode of our Madam C.J. Walker and Adolphus Bush episode. So if you're counting, that's the fourth episode on those people. We had to split this into two parts. So last week you heard the first part of the episode. This week you're going to hear the second part. Again, apologies for the audio not being everything we would like it to be. That will be fixed for our next episode. If you haven't listened to the last three parts of this series, mini-series, yet, go ahead and do that before you listen to this one. Otherwise, go ahead, sit down, dive in, and enjoy the final part of our mini-series on Madam C.J. Walker and Adolphus Bush. pivot and talk a little bit about what it was like to work for these two titans of industry like as a worker like as a worker yeah, as worker? an employee yeah oh i'm sure health benefits well it was pretty good for women who worked for oh. madam walker her target employees were women who had toiled for years at wash basins and rail yards and factories she gave them the opportunity to work in a much less physically demanding job one might even say a glamorous one and make significantly more money in her ads, uh, yeah. she promised earnings of $15 to $40 a week. Now, it was commission-based, oh, so pretty variable, but still sure. more than they might make in a month in another job. Yeah, and you get to, like, dress nice and, mm-hmm. like, go You're to people's inside. house. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Madam also had the idea to get her employees together, to get them to organize. Not in a union, per se, but as a political power and fundraising group, kind of similar to those ladies' auxiliaries. Okay. She hosted a large conference in 1916 where she invited representatives from all over the country to come to Villa Luaro to create what on her own ground describes as an enterprise on a grand scale controlled by Black women with political and civic objectives, a national sales force expressly organized around the principles of corporate responsibility, social betterment, and racial justice. That sounds amazing. Legit. She led sales contests for her employees, but also charitable contests where the teams that did the most good for their communities would get financially rewarded. Cool. And she kept a constant eye out for stars in her sales force that she could promote into training or leadership roles where they could make even more. This is very, we talked about this last time. This is very pyramid schemey. I mean, well, we're going to talk about that at the end of this episode. Yeah, no, I'm sure. I just, it's like every. So it's mm-hmm. like they're building blocks up to that pyramid. My favorite thing she ever said about her workforce, though, had to do with how she felt about labor. I take the stand that laborious work such as is done in my factory is worth more than the office work. You would find many persons huh. who could have been trained for office work and could fill any one of their places much easier than you could Miss Kelly's, the head of manufacturing, for everybody is looking for an easy job. She knew. She'd been a laborer. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Her parents were slaves for the love of fucking God. I know. I just, I like that. I've always thought that's true. That yeah, labor's a lot harder and should be paid better than, like that job I had that we talked about before where I got paid real good money to uh, <laughs> read ebooks and take a phone call every couple hours. <clears throat> Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, but no, I I completely agree. And I mean, if you think back before industrialization, you did get paid well for working hard, but also having a skill. It was kind of a hybrid of the two, mm. really. Um, but then that went away when machines took over. <laughs> um, so I think it, I feel like it used to be revered and and rewarded, which More it is so. no longer. I mean, again, I'm not no an longer. expert, but like. I'm sort of addicted to those um, historical reenactment BBC shows where, like, okay. they get a okay. bunch of archaeologists to live as Edwardian farmers or as uh, French peasants or whatever. Um, and uh, they talked in one episode about masons, stone masonry. Mm. Now, if you were a mason, like, you were kind of the shit. It was a big deal. Any place they were building a monastery or a cathedral or something, if you were a good mason, you were in. 
you were doing good. I think, I mean, obviously I'm a woman, so that would never have been open to me, but if I could have been a dude in the medieval era, the reverence that they gave to skilled trades is something I really appreciate. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's what I mean, kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, I mean, it's just like, it's a combo of brains and brawn, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I like that. It was a different story for Adolphus's employees. I'm sure you're shocked to hear. Shocking. Most were German immigrants, unsurprisingly, although other ethnicities could make inroads if they learned how to cuss Auf Deutsch. I'll quote quote under the influence, the men worked 14-hour days, six days a week, with six to eight hours on a Sunday. Jeez. They were paid $14 per week. Remember, that's the minimum for Madam's hairdressers. Many of them were single men who lived in brewery-owned dormitories near the plant. Shaken from their sleep at 2 a.m., they worked until dark. It was a job that created alcoholics. As a fringe benefit, uh, workers could have all the free beer they wanted. Wow. Wow. The work, it's, like, it's like a Chinese factory. Yeah. yeah the work I was mean, dirty that's... and dangerous. I mean, this is pre-OSHA, right? So when bottles blew up in the bottling plant or you got a hernia from lifting barrels, well, shucks. Someone to replace you. Yep. Eventually, the workers did unionize, and that union became just as influential to the workers as the madam's ladies' auxiliaries had been. They got their shorter work days, 12 hours a day, six days a week. Along with companionship and camaraderie, they'd march in parades together. I mean, it became like their identity. It was like when I worked at Apple, and we were all little Apple cultists. Upon death, many of them chose to have their remains kept for eternity in the union hall. Wait, what? Like their ashes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Not just their body thrown in the corner. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Did I mention I did not proofread this script? Okay. <laughs> uh, wow. I, I mean, that's hardcore. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a shift. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've titled the next section Skullduggery. Okay which is a great word and accurate. It is. Both Adolphus and the madam were happy to do whatever needed to be done to make sure their business survived. Whether it meant hiring very good lawyers, which they both did. Their lawyers were both like very close friends and very influential to them. Or doing things that were sometimes slightly shadier. I mean, as usual, the madam kept herself largely above board. But there is one scheme both behemoths of business tried and failed at. Price fixing. Hmm. In 1889, Adolphus Bush decided it was time to get into bed with his frenemies, Pabst, Schlitz, and Lemp. I get the sense that they got along really well as human beings and were purely frenemies in the business sense, kind of like dictators. You know how Erdogan and Duterte and like Kim Jong-un are all friends? Yeah. I mean, when you got enemies like this, who needs friends? Well, and who else is going to understand them? You know? Exactly. All four had been using the same dirty tricks to get ahead, lying to prospective saloon owners about what deals the others could offer, spreading rumors, undercutting each other to get control of cities, to have like a majority of breweries in a given city. Presumably it was getting tiring. So Adolphus reached out. My dear, I have to do a German accent again. Yeah. Yeah. My dear friend, Captain Pabst, the present way competition is running. We are only hurting each other in a real foolish way. Adolphus's letter began. Now a perfect understanding between your good self, Schlitz, Lemp, and myself ought to be reached. Matters regulated, and I feel confident that each of the four concerns mentioned would then realize a profit of a half million or even a million more than they do now. Captain Pabst? Yeah, Captain Pabst. Did I neglect to mention that? You neglected to mention that he was a captain in like the Navy? I don't know. He just, or he was a pirate, maybe. Who knows? I did not That's research hilarious. Pabst, but Captain Pabst. Captain, Captain Pab. Captain Pab. Okay, so he's like, let's, let's, yeah. Like, I mean, let's if decide ever... together what we're going to charge. And if we all right. agree to charge slightly more than we're charging now, and we're not going to undercut each other, we'll all make more money. Right. And if it, if the public thinks that we're rivals, that doesn't matter. It'll be mm-hmm. good for all our all our business. Yep. I mean, monopolies were a great idea. Yeah. Right? Like, from a business standpoint, they make a ton of sense. 
And in an era of minimal government regulation, no corporate income tax, and growing opportunity, hey, everyone was doing it. Carnegie, Rockefeller, the rest. Why couldn't beer? Yeah. Yeah. They didn't quite succeed in forming the monopoly they dreamt of, but they did start to organize in other ways. Bush's franchise plan that by this point everyone was following was working gangbusters. By 1909, some 70 to 80 percent of saloons were at least partly brewery owned. And this during a time when, to quote last call, half the city's population patronized a saloon on an average day. I mean, the money is flowing in. Wow. This money doesn't just make them rich. It's making the government rich. We talked a little about alcohol taxes during our pub quiz episode, but here's the rub of it. Our government for a very long time made a huge chunk of its money on alcohol taxes. In 1875, fully a quarter of the country's revenue came from booze sales. Initially, the brewers didn't love this. I mean, it cut into their profits, right? But then they realized this gave them a lot of control over the government itself. Because if the feds were going to close down saloons, they'd be giving themselves a pay cut. Oh. Right? Still, temperance advocates grew louder and louder, and the U.S. Brewers Association couldn't totally ignore them. They did eventually get together and form a, a brewers organization. So they did what any group worried about being on the wrong side of history does. They made a whole bunch of propaganda. Oh. That propaganda and the lobbying groups created to distribute it have startlingly modern names. The National Protective Organization, the Personal Liberty League, the National Association of Commerce and Labor. Strong, vaguely patriotic names for groups with very specific agendas. I mean, it's a very Patriot Act. The conservative American. Yeah. Yeah. The conservative American protections we don't even say conservative right you say like the the family safety council oh yeah but it's about limiting abortions you know what i mean right 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 so these were all of the things that were that the breweries and the were forming Mm -hmm. yep yep and they distribute documents saying you know really it's just liquor that's the problem beer is light You know, beer is just a refreshing drink on a hot day. Right. Mixed with a little little opium. Mm-hmm. Um, you've also got newspaper writers associated with these groups that would be hired by the brewers to write oh, yeah. pro-beer articles for sure. all the newspapers. So it was pretty concerted. Amusingly, Madam Walker also tried unsuccessfully to get a trust going late in her career. She invited all of the other owners of black hair care companies to a summit at Villa Luaro to do a little uh, price fixing. (laughs) I don't know that that's in like what the summit was called for. I think she probably had grander ideas about it, but it definitely turned into like, what can we do to make sure we get ahead? You know, so is price fixing illegal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it had just become illegal in this era because like the steel industry and the oil industry, all these major industrial interests had started doing it. And the government was finally like, uh, maybe we need to regulate something. So basically it's saying that different, different companies in the same industry can all get together and say, we each charge between $1 and $1 and 25 cents per beer or whatever, per whatever, mm-hmm. let's all jump up and charge $2. Yes. And then no one has any other choice. Right. Gotcha. Yep. It's one of those things that will never really go away. I think people still try to do it all the time, yeah. but whenever there are laws against it now, so you can get, okay. you can get, in but that's not it. what a monopoly is. A monopoly is when companies buy companies and then there's not any competition. They're the only right? one. Right. But this is also right. sort of a monopoly because when you've got yeah. that price fixed setup, it's yeah. not like somebody else can come in. I wonder what stories there are of like, you're like, oh, I'm Captain Paps. I'm going to go to the secret price fixing meeting. And then I'll be like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do X number of dollars per barrel. And then, like, 
I'm in on it for like a couple months and then I'm like, bam, it's a sell sale on Pabst. Mm-hmm. Only X, you know, only mm-hmm. $2 a beer. And then everyone's like, ooh. Like I'm saying getting- this without any like backup documentation, but I feel like that's the oil industry in a nutshell. Like there's a uh, lot of that that happens internationally. And there is the, there's like a conference every year that like all the, it's kind of like a price fixing conference. Actually, I was just listening to NPR about it like, like a couple of weeks ago and the price of oil is so high right now. Yeah. They all get together and they all decide like, what's, what is, what's oil worth? And like, mm-hmm. what are we going to charge per barrel? And then they do that once a year. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Like, I don't understand and the rules yeah. are written by the people who can afford lobbyists. You know what I mean? So I feel like all of these right. rules have very big loopholes built into them from the ground up. Indeed. Indeed. Which I'm sure people like Adolphus Bush swam right through those loopholes. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that, Jason, because our last segment. It's called loopholes. It's <laughs> called political influence. Oh, there we go. So, Yes. By the end of her life, Madam Walker was regularly hosting a veritable who's who of Black America at Villa Luaro. Her salons were, and salon, I don't mean hair salon, I mean like the French sense of salon, were (laughs) aimed at getting movers and shakers acquainted with each other. And they were often centered around the cause closest to her heart, the anti-lynching movement. Lynching had become epidemic around the turn of the century. When World War I came around, Black men enlisted in mighty numbers, hoping that by serving their country, their country would serve them when they came home, granting them greater rights and, you know, prosecuting lynchings instead of just kind of ignoring them as had been happening. Unfortunately, they came home to President Wilson, a racist with whom I share a birthday, who steadfastly ignored any and all requests to even comment on the issue from the White House. CJ goes to or went to Wilson High School, and they just, uh, last year, they changed his high school name. Nice. And his, yeah, his high school was Wilson High School. And he now goes to Ida B. Wells High School. She Much was better. in. Do you know who she is? I know a little bit about her, yeah. Yeah, Just she a was little. a, uh, she was an advocate for anti lynching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. Madam worked with her. She shows up a bunch in those books. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, he, he no longer goes to Wilson High School, which Good. I thought was fucking fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Great birthday I have. It's Woodrow Wilson's birthday and also. You know how everyone has a Catholic Saints Day associated with their birthday? Do they? I don't know. What's your birthday? June 19th. 1994. (laughs) So you have St. Romuald. That's your saint Wait, every every day has a saint? Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a lot. I didn't know there were that many saints. Oh, there, there are more than 365. St. Romuald? St. Romuald of Ravenna, a Christian ascetic who founded the uh, a group of Benedictine monks. That's all he did? Yeah. Well, the point that I'm getting at is I was born on December 28th, which is not a classic saint's day. No, no. It's the day we remember King Herod's slaughter of the innocents when he killed every oh. baby boy that he thought could be Jesus. Big, that, big murder that's, day. That's the day. Yep, that's the day. Murder day. Well, happy birthday. Thank um, you. So, Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson. One of the things that Madam did with her sort of quasi-union of saleswomen was send telegrams to the president saying, all of these women say you need to get off your butt and condemn this. We're going to talk about this a little more in the future because, again, I think it deserves more time and I'm running wildly over time with this script, but there are some deeply upsetting and bizarre stories about how alcohol tied into the lynching epidemic. So now finally we circle back to prohibition. (laughs) By the turn of the century, it was becoming clear that the brewers anti-temperance lobbying was wilting before the weight of the anti-saloon league and the remnants of the WCTU. The government, long very hands-off with regard to business, had actually started to regulate things, and it looked like they might, just might, start to regulate liquor. 
1893, the government put together a task force called the Committee of 50 to determine whether or not the country had a drinking problem, and if so, if they needed to perform a, a, an intervention. As the country was, in fact, a bit alcoholic, the report that yeah. they put together was pretty damning, linking America's boozing with its poverty, declining moral values, and increased crime. And I say declining moral values in quote fingers, because that's always a right, quote fingers right. phrase. They seemed to ally with the Dry Coalition, who argued that the years of anti-alcohol education, <clears throat> propaganda, cough, which we'll discuss next week, because that's a wild story, hadn't worked. So, like the kid who plays too many video games, we should take the temptation away forever and throw out the Xbox. I'm surprised that it went that way. All of this, you know, alcohol lobbying that they usually weren't organized. wins. Uh. Because the brewers wouldn't work with the distillers. The brewers are saying the distillers are the problem, right? It's hard alcohol that's the problem. We're basically just selling a soft drink. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, yeah, and they probably felt above they probably felt above any any reproach that, that no one could touch them because mm -hmm. they're so rich and there's a never yeah. there's a, always an insane demand. Why how could they possibly stop people from it seems like a that it was something that didn't seem real. Yeah. I probably would feel the same thing if I was a king of industry of you know if I was Adolphus Bush. I would right? think like, oh, please, I'm making bazillions of dollars every day from beer. Like, how would they, how would, why would anybody stop me? How could anybody stop me? Exactly. Well, and we, we talked really early on about how it's harder to get organized and get motivated when you're a part of the status quo that you want to maintain. Yeah. As opposed to being part of a movement. Right. Right. On top of this, there has been a generation, maybe two generations, of extreme anti-alcohol propaganda. We're going to talk about that next episode, the woman who's behind a lot of that. But it's now gotten into popular culture from, from childhood for a lot of the people that are adults now, that this is a moral evil, you know? And Adolphus Bush, in trying to maintain the status quo by doing what makes perfect sense for him to do, you know, to go after political figureheads and use his influence politically and financially to keep this from happening, it actually makes him look really bad. It turns him into a target of the dries because yeah. he's this big, bodacious, like over the top character. It's really easy to pin him as sort of the icon of the enemy. Does that yeah. make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And he's, a, I'm sure he's 100% oblivious to what he's doing is affecting yeah. any of what he's fighting against. Yeah. I mean, he's so wealthy. When's the last time he hobnobbed with yeah, the average folk, right? Yeah. And I would imagine that this temperance has been so ingrained in the, you know, that you talked about morality, but mm -hmm. the religious aspect of society, if that's slowly growing, into that, I mean, even today, you know, it's so many, there's so many parts of society that if you're not religious, mm -hmm. you're shunned, you're, you're looked down upon. And so if it's now anti-alcohol or whatever is slowly becoming part of religion and well, I, faith, faith, yeah. Then that's, I mean, that's just like grassroots. You don't have to even do anything about it because everybody, you know, quote, quote, mm -hmm. everybody goes to church. Well, I think uh, that's what makes abortion such a good analog. Yeah. You know, even 60, 70 years ago, it wasn't that much of a big deal. No, not at all. But when it became an issue that could be used politically, yep. it starts, I don't know, getting into the blood. The propaganda starts getting into the blood of certain subsets of the population. And so now you have kids whose parents were raised on the idea that abortion is murder and mm -hmm. it is, there's a genocide happening of fetuses, you know, that seems perfectly logical and rational. It's what you've been taught since you were an infant. It's all, you know, it's all, you know. And at that point, I you mean, know, for a lack if, of better word, it becomes gospel. Yeah. And you know, depending on how things go in the next 15 years, I could mm. see if, you know, we get more Republican leadership 
that's the kind of thing people would go for an amendment for. You know what I mean? Oh, like a prohibition of abortion? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it. Roe versus Wade is very much under attack. So, yeah, um, yeah, that's I think that's a very good um, uh, dotted line to to abortion um, yeah. from the past for what is it, forty five years? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you know, so it seems like the the bushes of the of the world, the Adolphus bushes, were just taking everything for granted. I think so. I, I think they thought they couldn't be touched. Yeah. By the time Adolphus is ready to retire, that's when he starts realizing the shit's hitting the fan. Like, yeah. this could actually happen. So instead of retiring and just turning the business over to his son and going off to hunt peacocks with a diamond cannon or whatever the ultra rich, rich do, uh, he found mm. himself to be forced, essentially, to be a lobbyist on the side of the wets. Yeah, you got to keep your fortune alive, your Mm -hmm. dynasty. I'll quote under the influence again. The formula Adolphus used for fighting prohibition was simple but expensive. Influence politicians and buy goodwill. He said, we ought to extract a promise from every representative and senator whom we support that they in turn will watch over our interests, he said. It is my aim to win the American people over to our side, to make them all lovers of beer and teach them to have respect for the brewing industry and the brewer. It may cost a million dollars and even more, but what of it if thereby we elevate our position? I stand ready to sacrifice my annual profits for years to come if I can gain my point and make people look upon beer in the right light. I didn't hear anything you said. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> I literally heard nothing you said. But so listeners, I hope you did. But your accent has become so funny. Like <laughs> it's a little morphed, in it now. It is morphed into something that is unrecognizable <laughs> as human. <laughs> I love bad accents. Uh, I you know you do. Have you ever seen me I improvise? I have no shame in the fact that my accents are all terrible, and I'm happy to commit to them entirely. And you like to kick me into the bad accent ravine with you. I'm learning not to. I'm learning to be a nicer person. But oh no, it's funny. Yes. You gotta you gotta jump in with you. Like, Hello, Braza. What are you doing? <laughs> Be like, well, I just got back from America. That's yep. that's always my that's always my response. Um, no, I actually did hear what you said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically all he's saying is I'm willing to spend as much money yeah. as I can to influence the people who need to be influenced. And lucky Which for I him. Which I assume he does and fails. <laughs> basically. I mean, he has friends in very high places. He uh, spent a bunch of money and a bunch of influence getting first Theodore Roosevelt and later Taft into the White House. Um, he spent so much money. He was investigated for campaign finance fraud, even in those early years. Wow. I mean, nothing happened, but yeah, right. he was investigated. And even though he succeeded in getting both the Rough Rider and the large bather into office, he was ultimately, (laughs) (laughs) he was ultimately abandoned by both. Taft was a particular disappointment. Adolphus had moved heaven and earth to get him the Republican nomination to go up against the violently dry Democrat, William Jennings Bryan, and even got his personal lawyer, a guy named Nagel, a spot in cabinet. So Adolphus's personal lawyer is now a member of cabinet. Wow. I'm so shocked he failed. I'm surprised well, he didn't go bankrupt. What's funny is that he always referred to Nagel as being his conscience. Like when he was trying hmm. to decide whether or not to do something, he would ask Nagel and if Nagel said it it was a bad thing to do. He wouldn't do it. But Nagel yeah. was too conscientious because once he became a cabinet member, he started researching temperance and then wrote Adolphus a 15 page missive describing why Ooh. the brewers had been behaving very badly. <laughs> so, that, so he got into public service and was like, I should probably be a good public servant and uh-huh. do the right thing. Oh, uh-huh. sorry. Sorry, Adolphus. And then Taft, who... Adolphus had had many dinners with and who he'd been sending boxes of like really expensive wine for a long time. Turns out Taft was largely sober. He just like didn't like drinking. He just never bothered to tell Bush. (laughs) 
But um, Taft was just like, hey, you're sending me free wine. I can give that to other people. And you're donating shit tons of money. I'm, I'm yeah. not going to tell you I'm pro-temperance. Why would I do I'll, that? I'll sip my wine while we hobnob and mm-hmm. look like I'm drinking. Mm-hmm. Oh, how funny. So Adolphus was just fucking himself over, really. Uh-huh. He was old and ill by this point. In a letter he wrote, should I do the accent? Do again? it. You've okay. got to do it. In a letter he wrote, I often think about it. Yog and I'll. I often think about it. I often think about it. I often wish I was again 40 years old and could rule Okay, you need co- to start, slow down, <laughs> slow down. Okay, go back. And he's got to be old. He sounds so springy oh, and oh, young. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think old German, old German. Yog and I'll. It's like sexy German. <laughs> yeah, I am a German model. I often think about it. I often yes. wish I was again 40 years old and could rule this country with absolute despotism. How pure the air would be after my term was over. I was imagining that I could play the accordion and that I would start playing like, as you were talking just now. <laughs> I, 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 heard, I heard like a sad accordion in the background or a, glockensch- a glockenspiel. Whenever Germans talk in the early 20th century about absolute despotism and how pure they would like things to be, I get bad yeah. vibes. I'm not sure. saying he was a Nazi. He wasn't a Nazi. No, but I don't think so. Yeah, but sure. I mean, also, yeah. it, was he even German at this point? Oh, he was going back and forth all the time. Was he? Okay. I mean, not that that doesn't make that can't, it's not like that doesn't make you a Nazi. If you're a Nazi, you're a Nazi. I don't care where you're from. His kids were definitely very pro World War I, the ones that married into German families. Right. Um, But again, yeah, interesting. He just sounds like he was, right. It just sounds like he was grasping for, he just didn't want to lose what he had. had. Yeah. Yeah. Which is understandable. Nobody does. Sure. His remaining years were a bit of a disappointment. Sure, he had the biggest 50th anniversary party maybe ever. It was celebrated in multiple cities across the country. Gold, diamonds, huge expense, fireworks. But Taft lost re-election to Wilson, a Dem who was pro-temperance. And in 1913, he passed away in his sleep, either of heart disease or cirrhosis of the liver, depending on who you ask. But not from his own beer. Not from his own beer. Even after his final decade of political spending, he left $50 million, which is over a billion dollars in today's money, to his remaining descendants. Wow. Now, there is one final thing we have to circle back to because I promised we would, and that is multi-level marketing. Yes. The Madam was a well-coiffed energizer bunny, alternating trips around the country with moves from state to state. And at every stop, she holds these events, right, where she signs up as many women as she can to become distributors. These women would buy a starter kit, get some training, and then go off on their own to create a business. Eh, Sounds familiar, right? I I mean, I, I, I called it from, like, the moment you introduced her. You did. I'm still a little skeptical. And I'll get into why. For listeners, though, even if you're not an expert in MLMs, you've been exposed to them. I guarantee sure. that every listener to this podcast has had a coworker who tried to sell them gaudy leggings or spidery mascara or Amway. Put simply, multi-level marketing organizations. But I'm sorry, leggings? There are legging pyramid schemes? Oh, yes. LuLaRoe. Leggings? Mm-hmm. Like pants? Yeah. Oh, you need to Google LuLaRoe. You'll die. That's the dumbest pyramid scheme I've ever heard. I guess oh, if they it's, made bank. Yeah. Uh. It was okay. a big one. I had multiple coworkers in North Carolina trying to sell me leggings. Wow. I just always think supplements. Yeah. Like any kind of health, like any kind yeah. of health thing or like supplements or like I was telling you my friend was like well, into it's green, you're a dude. Green, I think makeup powder. and cheap jewelry, but yeah. 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 Put simply, multi-level marketing organizations or MLMs are companies that to quote Wikipedia use a non-salaried workforce to sell the company's products or services while the earnings of the participants are derived from a pyramid-shaped or binary compensation commission system. Basically, a modern MLM relies on two separate streams of revenue. Consultants earn money by directly selling their products, but they earn way more money by signing people up to work beneath them. 
New recruits generally have to buy a large starter kit, the cost of which can right. range from fifty to $5,000. And any money they make gets split with their upline or the chain of people above them. They're a modern scourge that actively targets those most in need of income, stay-at-home moms, the poor, those otherwise unable to work outside the home. And while some get very, very rich through MLMs, typically the founders and the very first recruits, according to the FTC, some 99% of MLM consultants actually lose cash through the scheme. There's a really, really good podcast series called The Dream that goes into this in a lot more detail. Go listen to it. It'll make you really mad, but like in a good way. So what I'm predicting you're about to say is that that 99% losing money or doing poorly in the pyramid scheme was not true for Madam CJ Walker's empire. Yes, and the question is why? Because why did the why did the women actually make money? Right. I mean, looking at that de- definition I gave you, Madam's organization as far as I can tell and I looked for an org chart or like <laughs> Right. A, a company structure. I couldn't find one, right. but it seems like they only fit half the definition. I mean, she's signing up salary list consultants to work on commission who need to buy a starter kit, but I don't think those salespeople could sign up people below them. See, or that they would get the, they could sign up people, but they wouldn't, they weren't like working under them at that point. They just were perhaps. like, Hey, Hey friend, I made this money. You should sign up with me. I mean, I think the fundamental difference is that modern MLMs have two tiers of customers. There's the consultant who is a customer, even though they think of themselves as a girl boss. Right. They have to buy the expensive starter kit, and that's where right. the corporation makes the money, right? And then there's the end consumer who buy the elements of that starter kit, who buy the mascara or the leggings. And MLMs at the corporate level don't give a shit about that end consumer. Hmm. Because the consultant needs to buy their inventory from the MLM, they are the primary customer, right? Anything oh, right. beyond that is resales. It's like having a garage sale or sending your stuff to Goodwill, right? Right, because once you sell it, you're you're done. It's yours. It belongs to you until you exactly. resell it. Yep. Gotcha. Yep, yep, yep. The Madams Company did care about the end consumer, though, because they were looking yeah. to get salon customers, right? So, yes, she's selling a starter kit. And the consultants were encouraged to buy and keep inventory. And the madam made a lot of money on that. But it made more sense for her to care about creating long-term franchises through her consultants who would then Mm -hmm. come back for haircut and haircut and haircut rather than pumping and dumping them for these one-time starter kits. Right. The reason that modern MLMs resort to the pump and dump is fundamentally a numbers game. If I, a consultant, sign up five people under me and each of those five people sign up five people, now I have 30 people in my downline, right? The original five and then the 25 under those five people. And I'm earning money on all of their sales. Great. But now we have two problems. One, those 30 people are probably part of the same or at least adjacent social networks. That's why they call this network marketing, right? Yeah, right. So now with those... 30 people, my little corner of the marketplace is saturated. I might've done really well when I was the only one selling because I could sell to all of those people. But now none of those 30 are making real money because if I'm a consultant and you're a consultant and we're trying to sell to our friends, yeah, how does that work? Second, the math doesn't work. Because if I recruit five people and those five people each recruit five people and then those five people each recruit five people, it only takes 15 repetitions of that pattern before we have literally recruited every single person on the planet. Wait, what? So five and then 25 and then 125 Uh and it's exponential, right? So by the time you go down 15 layers, five people and five people, yeah, it's more than 7 billion people. No, 15 layers? Uh-huh. It's true. No. I swear to God. That's not true. It's I don't true. believe that. Ask need... John Oliver. He did a good special on it. I need a calculator. That seems insane to me. That doesn't seem right. Google so you go it. from Google one, the math of MLMs. You go from one person uh-huh. and you go in multitudes of five uh-huh. and by 15 layers from uh-huh. that first person, you've got the entire planet. Yep. So, yeah, this does not seem like what she was doing at all. No. So she's got what we might call a very shallow pyramid. And then they actually care about the customers. 
Right. Yeah. So I would call her like a direct salesperson or even a network marketer, but not an MLMer. Weird. I'm looking at the charts. Now, amusingly, we're all wearing Mary Kay. <laughs> amusingly, when I started Googling around to find evidence for or against Madam's business being a reverse funnel system, pyramid scheme, MLM, whatever you want to call it, I found that people actively involved in MLMs love to claim her as their own. One network marketer I found, a consultant for New Money Team, in a very informationally lean blog post, wrote, not only did Madam C.J. Walker's business make her very wealthy, but it also helped others earn an extraordinary living. She paid representatives for referring people, and the top sales agents were making more money than most middle-class Americans at the time. This is the only industry where the only glass ceilings are moonroofs. Mondays feel like Fridays. Pay raises are up to you, and your customers can make money with the company, too. Oh, my God. First of all, that was perfect. Thank you. Second of all, whoever that was. It was actually a guy, so it doesn't sound like that. Shut up, really? Yeah. yeah. That's yeah, that's hilarious. Uh, that's still what he sounds like. Um. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm glad that I, I definitely am feeling the fact that it still mattered that the product was getting into people's hands. That's mm-hmm. right there. That's the difference. Yeah. yeah. And it's not a garbage product, right? Like it's, it's not $5 mystery metal earrings. And there's not like a gazillion other products like it, right? right? Like right. she, she, she spearheaded and trailblazed products that hadn't been products before that hadn't been something before. So your end customer is, has to be important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's what bugged me about that post from that MLM -er. and what bugs me about how people promote multi-level marketing. Because he then goes on to exhort his readers to get into network marketing also, saying rather insultingly that if she did it, you can too, utterly ignoring her exceptionalism, the fact that she had a virtually untapped market, and that her products, you know, actually helped people grow hair. I suspect that if Madam were around today selling $5 paparazzi earrings or Unique's oddly orange foundation that, by the way, doesn't come in dark colors, so she wouldn't have sold it anyway. She would not have done quite so well as she did. Yeah. Yeah. She just, to me, it almost sounds like that was because of when it was, who she was, that her business model was the reason she was successful. Mm -hmm. Because I would imagine it would have been exponentially more difficult to go about creating uh, an empire like that creates a product Mm -hmm. in the traditional way back then right like getting Mm -hmm. funding and and having factories and selling to selling to stores and distributing across the nation or whatever but she started with people she recruited people that knew about the product cared about the product because they were other black women and then that is how it grew, grew i think any other way would probably have been virtually impossible back then It's not that network marketing is fundamentally bad. It's that it's been bastardized and streamlined to get the most money out of the bottom layers possible into the hands of the top. So I think of her as sort of a benevolent network marketer. That does not change my mind at all about the fact that modern network marketing is a scourge. I mean, MLMs make me really angry. If you are being, if you're thinking, listener, about getting involved in an MLM and you're hearing all of this, it's up to you. You control your income. If you're not making money, it's because you're not putting in the work. Know that that is bullshit. The system is set up for you to fail. 99% of people who get into these businesses lose money because they're structured to funnel money up, not down. And that's not going to change no matter how hard you work. And then these companies indulge in victim blaming. They're saying that if you're not making the money, it's because you're not enough. And all the the reason that that is done, the purpose of that is to make it harder for you to admit failure at all or be go against the company for setting you up. It's right. all manipulation. 
MLMs make me really angry. Epilogue. Yes. Yes. Epilogue. Last episode, we talked about the seemingly endless series of lawsuits related to the name Budweiser. Well, I found an interesting little article on a website called Good Beer Hunting that gave a taste of a little update. See, Anheuser-Busch merged with the Brazilian mega company InBev a little while ago. And then in 2014, they purchased a little eensy brewery called Samson, a brewery in Chesky Budiovice in Budweiss. Mm. Now, it wasn't reported on much because the purchase was made at a time when AB InBev was selling off most of its Central and Eastern European brands because they'd acquired another conglomerate called SAB Miller, and there was a bunch of legal stuff. It doesn't matter. But without much fanfare or press attention, AB has been pouring money into this little upstart. And I say upstart, but Samson has been around in one form or another for some 800 years. Mm-hmm. Up through the 90s, Samson was pretty popular, but it tanked in the 2000s. So they probably got it pretty cheap. And it seems like the Bush story is repeating itself a little. Part of the reason Samson was struggling was because, wait for it, uh, the beer was shit. To quote mm. the Good Beer Hunting article, in 2009, one reviewer on Rate Beer gave the beer a single star before describing it thusly. Ew, there are chewy things floating in it, like toilet paper. At least Gross. it smells decent. Gross. Ew. But AB has been putting in upgrades. And in 2018, Samson was awarded the prize for the Czech Republic's top Czech style pale lager. So the question now is, is AB InBev making a run around Budvar, which is still super popular in Europe? I mean, it's the Czech national brewery, right? To have their own geographically protected Budweiser. Because Budweiser is now a geographically protected designation in Europe. Beer from Budweiss, right? Right. This blog doesn't seem to think so, but I would not put it past them. So what is the name of this beer? Samson is the name of the brewery. Samson. Can I can I go and look for that as well? I did. I couldn't find it in the States, or at least not in my area, but you totally could. S-A-M-S-O-N. And it's um, from the Czech Republic? It's from Budweiser. It is a Budweiser. Oh, okay. Okay. If you think about it that way. So I, I that'll be look. interesting to watch. And you know what? If it isn't some corporate scheme, they kept this historical brewery from going under, and that's great. Yeah. Yeah, And what about Madam C.J. Walker? Her business was passed through the women in the family until 1981 when the company folded. The 90s and the aughts were not a great time for black hair care. A lot of the legacy black-owned companies got bought out by major corporations, meaning that money moved out of black communities instead of staying within them. That's the sobering ending Chris Rock narrated for his excellent documentary, Good Hair. And at the time, it didn't look like things would change anytime soon. Big companies will always try to snap up successful little ones. And we can't begrudge the founders of those companies for taking a huge payout. No, I would be a company. Shea Moisture and Carol's daughter, for example, can be found at just about any Walgreens or CVS. And while they were Black-founded, they're no longer Black-owned. They were sold off. But there has been a bit of a renaissance in smaller Black-owned hair care brands making good, thanks in part to a thriving natural hair community online. Now, I live in a primarily Black neighborhood, and my local Walgreens has products from Alafia and Pattern on the shelves, and there are tons more that are available in specialty shops and online. So if you want to shop for Black hair care, even if you don't have Black hair, the products are really good, especially if you have any curl in your hair at all. Go out of your way and do it. It's worth it. Cool. Even Madam C.J. Walker's iconic brand has made a comeback. In 20- her name, The name of her brand was just Madam Walker's? Uh, it was Madam C.J. Walker's Glossine or whatever the, the product was. Okay. But in 2016, Sundial Brands began producing Madam C.J. Walker beauty culture hair products exclusively for Sephora. Oh. They go by MCJW Hair Care. Like MCJW is the yeah, thing right. that you see on the packaging now. Updated formulas, of course, right? But still. And what's cool about this, the guy who started Sundial Brands is a Liberian refugee named Richelieu Dennis, who started just about as small as the madam did. I mean, when he came to the States, he was a street corner sales dude in Harlem. Wow. 
he became successful enough that he was able to found a, a trust, a fund with $100 million in it to invest in companies owned by women of color. And as part of that fund, he also bought Villa Lawaro. What? Yeah. Oh, cool. What a happy ending. And the families involved, Alelia Bundles, author of On Her Own Ground, is the brand's in-house historian. I mean, I what? think I, I think love she'd it. be proud. It is a happy I'm going to look for it. I'm going to go to Sephora and look for it. Right? Yeah. Uh, it's very cool. So that's I mean, I have zero I have zero curls in my hair, so I probably won't buy it. Um, right. But, you know, but. I you might be surprised if I use curl products on my hair and use like curly girl techniques. I guess like, scrunchy. Scrunch it, yeah, and do all that. Yeah. I get a good curl, surprisingly. Okay. Well, maybe I'll get so some. You never know. You might see me next time and I'll have some Madam CJ yeah. scrunchy curls up in here. I get some. I can do a little bit. I have like some sea salt spray that I put in my hair. That right. Yeah. Gives it like a little bit of like beach texture. Like I've been at the beach. So now that we've gotten through all of this, we've finished the stories of Bush and Madam C.J. Walker. What words of wisdom would you leave us with, Jason? If you're going to propose, do it with a lion cub. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) Minus the kidnapping. (laughs) Big thank you to the authors of all of the books and articles that we used uh, for this mini series within a series on Madam C.J. Walker and Adolphus Bush. You can find uh, all of our references at bookshop.org slash shop slash antique tea. It'll be in our show notes. Uh, you can find us online at The Antique Tea on Twitter or at Antique Tea Podcast on Instagram. Uh, come to our live show in Seattle. We're playing on September 5th at 2 p.m. It's a Sunday. It's going to be really fun. We've got a great story for you. Um, tell your friends. Uh, we we want to keep growing. Um, so if you enjoy this, then please uh, ask anybody that you know named Lelia, Alelia, Madam, CJ, or Adolphus <laughs> to listen to our podcast. Man, man, you do that every time. And it's like we're always covering people with like weird fucking names. And you're like, if you know anyone with these three crazy names if you know anyone named beautiful brand eating dio (laughs) exactly our audience is our audience is going to grow one person every 20 years at that rate at that rate okay you know if you know know anyone named anything who likes anything about anything then tell them to listen to our podcast leave a review so that we look more respectable and legitimate and if you don't like our podcast and don't want to tell people about it and drinking goddamn Budweiser. You can fuck off, (laughs) y'all. And we'll see you same time next week with a brand new part of our Prohibition story that I've already started prepping and it's delightful. A back in the party tomb. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 